Hello and welcome to this episode of Battling with Business with me, Gareth Tennant. And me, Chris Kitchener. In this podcast, we explore ideas and concepts around teams and teamwork, leaders and leadership, and all things in between. It's a discussion between a former Royal Marines officer and a product manager from the world of business, comparing and contrasting our experiences as we attempt to work out what makes teams, leaders, and businesses tick. This week, we're doing another one of our influencers episodes, and this time we thought we'd do something a little bit different. So far, we've covered a few business leaders and lots of military leaders, and I wanted to take it in a slightly different direction. So this week, we're going to cover somebody that I don't think either of us know a huge amount about, so this could be tricky, but he's definitely out there as a different character. Well, and I, I think when you said that we're, we're going for someone, I mean... Erwin Rommel, I think this is about as further away from Erwin Rommel that you can possibly, possibly imagine. So go on, who, who is it we're going to talk about uh, today? I wanted to make sure that you and I are not just focusing on you know people that we're comfortable with, interested in and know a lot about and that we actually do what we said we were going to do from the outset, which is explore a wide range of influential people, both good and bad, from all walks of life from all roles. And so this week, we're going to look at the life and impact of Dolly Parton. That was a great pause just before you said the word Dolly Parton. As I think we've said in previous episodes, we sort of take it in terms to do a little bit of little bit of research and a little bit more. And I know very, very little about Dolly Parton. That said, you keep hearing slightly interesting snippets that there's possibly more to her than a singer who maybe was popular in the 70s. So I'm fascinated to learn how much of sort of those snippets I've heard. And perhaps that that's almost the first thing for us today, which is I think we're going to be impressed with Dolly. Yeah. But, but the fact that you don't know that you should be impressed with Dolly, I think is almost the first thing where this is clearly somebody who is very thoughtful about their, their sort of how people see them in the world. And so yeah. anyway, tell me, tell me about Dolly. I was WhatsApping with a friend of mine the other day and talking about the fact that I was doing research for this. And he just listened to our Erwin Rommel episodes. And uh, he came back and said, well, of course, natural bedfellows. What's <laughs> next? Paul Potts and Lindsay Lohan, which I thought was kind of a... a it's really an, good... we, we, that's another one we should think yeah, about doing. Absolutely. So you're right. Dolly Parton is not probably somebody that would jump to the front of your mind when you say influential leaders but of course we've talked about leadership before and what it is and the fact that it's not a job title it's not a position it's about your ability to make people do things to to change people's attitudes and, and change their behaviors and Dolly Parton is absolutely somebody that's done that before we go into her beginnings and her career and, and all the rest of it it's probably worth pointing out that you said she was famous in the 70s. Dolly Parton is very, very popular even now, and we'll talk about why, which is fascinating because she comes from a, a genre of music, the country music world, that is very popular over in the US, but not that popular elsewhere. It, it, it is clearly a, a, a mainstream genre of music, but rock music, pop music tend to be more more, more transferable. More transferable. And yet Dolly Parton, who, you know, was at the height of her success and fame in the in the 70s and early 80s, has managed to break out and become a global icon, global influencer, global powerhouse in the celebrity world. And her influence is probably a bit larger than people understand or, or perhaps expect. And she's also, interestingly... And, and this, for me, I think sums up where she is and how she's got there. At a time where we quite often talk about the polarism and populism of in the age of Boris Johnson, Donald Trump, Viktor Orban, et al., the, the problems that we're seeing with social media and the rise of connected technologies and AI affecting political opinion to the point where we're becoming very, very polarised, Dolly Parton is popular on all sides of the I was going to say, I, I, again, as with all these things, I had not thought about that. But 
you know, we 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 talk about leadership and teams and tribes. I wonder whether there is a lesson to be learned in terms of how do you rise above those tribes to bring many different people together rather than, you know, I've got a team of people and I'm like you pointing at one group of the team. Actually, I am I somehow sounds a bit too funny, but rise above that. And actually, I don't identify and therefore I can identify with everyone. Yeah, and it's interesting you, you used the word neutral, and of course, you, what you meant there was neutral in the political divide. Yes, but yes, absolutely. She's positive on both sides, and and we'll come into what I mean by that and how she's managed to do that. But there's a thing in the world of marketing called a Q score, which you might be aware of. But a Q score is effectively a statistical scoring process of popularity, and you, well, you don't, we don't, we're not famous enough. We will yeah, I don't have a Q score. Yeah, when this podcast goes global, we'll, we'll get one. But celebrities have Q scores, and this is how marketing agencies and sort of brands decide how to associate celebrities to, to their brand. And Dolly Parton has one of, if not the highest, positive Q score, which means she is beloved by people across all the demographics. She also has one of the lowest negative Q scores which means there are very few people who dislike her. And it's not because she keeps her cards close to her chest, and it's not because she doesn't get involved in politics. She's very vocal and proactive about the things she cares about, whatever side of the political debate they're on. She is true to her values, and as a result, people accept her and her views for what they are which is fascinating because she's managed to do this in a way that doesn't alienate the other side. I'll give a quick quick example of this. She came out very much in favour of the Black Lives Matter protests and the whole debate that was created after the, the tragic death of George Floyd a couple of years ago. I can't think of a political issue that is or was as divisive as quickly, especially over there in the US, And she came down on one particular side of that argument and yet didn't lose her white Southern support base. And and that is a testament to her character and the fact that people accept that she doesn't play political games. She believes in her values and her causes. So, so I I mean, it was interesting you said people, you, you talked about character and I was thinking about the word narrative. And, I, and again, as with all of these, I don't know, but is this a case that she has such a strong positive narrative that even when she says something that perhaps might alienate one group, the strength and consistency of that narrative shines through in a way it might not otherwise do? Yes, I, I think that's exactly it. And I think she is somebody who since you know her emergence on the international stage in the in the early 60s has just constantly shone a bright positive energy a bright light figuratively of course in in everything that she's done um so we should probably actually get down into the detail of who she is and what she's done i'm not sure we have i don't know to be honest but a a demographic of listeners who are going to be avid dolly parton fans I think you're underestimating (laughs) our listenership, quite frankly. Well, maybe, you know, we've got a diverse crowd. But what I'm not going to do is try and, you know, this is not a definitive history of Dolly Parton. This is not... Any more than it was of Erwin Rommel. Well... For for weeks, I was nervous that someone was going to say, well, you are clearly, all you've done is read a Wikipedia page. So, no, I'm I'm with you that if if you're here for the history, there'll be be the Dolly Parton podcast. But go on. Absolutely. And I've listened to many over the last few weeks. But uh, I'm not an expert in her music. I I enjoy some of her music. I wouldn't. Do you like? Do you like both kinds, one. country and western? That, by the <laughs> way, is a Blues Brothers joke for those of the people in the audience who have listened to the Blues Brothers. For everyone else, that was just a frivolous waste yeah. of time. <laughs> well, it, it actually, it leads me on to something. Before we get into the life and times of Dolly Parton, she was a couple of years ago, quite recently, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. At which point she said, I'm really flattered by this, but I don't do rock and roll. I do country and western, a little bit of pop, but I don't really do rock and roll. I'll tell you what, I'll release a rock album. And so the last album that she released is called Rockstar, 
And it is Dolly Parton collaborating with rock stars from the last 20 or 30 years. And it is, I've listened to a couple of the tracks on it. It's brilliant. And it's a very lighthearted country and Western slash pop global icon doing a bit of rock and roll because it's fun. Uh, and she's in her late 70s doing that. So, you know, wonderful and a a wonderful approach to receiving, you know, an award inducted into the Hall of Fame uh, and, and sort of shows her sort of level of humility and level of fun, I think. But she started from very humble roots. And a lot of people say that, but Dolly Barton, I think, is is very, very much from Humble Roots. So she was born in a, a place called Sevier County in Tennessee. I think the name gives you a sense of what it might be like. Her father was a farm labourer, farmer, and, and sort of general odd, odd jobs man as well, because trying to feed the family in the Smoky Mountains of rural Tennessee. They lived in a two-room cabin with no running water, no electricity, an outhouse, um, having to go to the well to get water in 1946 with her 11 siblings. So 14 people living in a cold wooden cabin in the Smoky Mountains. But from all accounts, she had a very happy childhood. And from the moment she could talk, she was singing and wanted to be a performer. Her uncle, I think, was involved in the in, locally in the sort of country music scene and sort of spotted her talent, if you like. Uh, and that was what gave her the opportunity to, to break into the music scene. Um, and I think as a, a testament to sort of her tenacity, and we'll see that as a theme carry on throughout, the day after she graduated high school, she upsticks from Sevier County, Tennessee, and moved to Nashville because she was going to make her make her mark in the music industry. She'd already had a few hit records, was already within the country scene, a known quantity, but went to Nashville to make it big. And that's where she met a guy called Porter Wagner, who was already quite a big name in the country and Western music scene. And he effectively took her under his wing uh, and then projected her out into the Nashville music scene. From what I can understand, that was quite a domineering and exploitative relationship. She was quite young, teenager at this point, and he wrote her into very binding contracts, was very, very controlling of her, both in terms of contractual law and the music, but also of her social life and what she did, and what she was, her freedoms and what she was allowed to do. But while she was there, nevertheless, she met her husband, who I do have his name somewhere here, Carl Dean. He's not very well known. Well, not... there's, an, there's another one of those things, which is, and is she still married to Carl? She is still married to him. Isn't that fantastic as well, which is in today's modern world, the partners of famous people, and she is notionally a megastar kind of a thing. You wouldn't even know if she was married because that's no. never been discussed. So there's a there's an element of privacy there as well. Element of I, I, I'm I'm kind of playing the Sherlock Holmes game, which is can you piece together other things? Protection of people that matter to her, and yeah. and and how she thinks about her own, for want of a better word, team. Yeah, I'm glad you picked up on that because that is a very deliberate thing. Her husband has no interest in being in the limelight, being famous. And absolutely, you know, as far as she's concerned, is you know very supportive, one of her biggest fans, but doesn't want to be part of that life. And so she makes every effort to not make him part of that life. And it's very difficult to find. There are a couple of photos of him on the internet, but not many. And it's, it's not a well-known thing that she's married, which is interesting because she is so famous and so much about her life is known. Um, he started a, a a tarmacking business, I think, or a road laying or, or some sort of construction business back in the 70s, which he still runs today. What's, I think, very humbling and, and interesting is that when they have their time together, they are apart from the media, apart from the hustle and bustle of life, and they get on with their, I was going to say ordinary, I'm not sure it is ordinary, but very quiet 
life together. Out of the eye, out of public Out eye. of the eye of the public. And she very deliberately protects him from that to the point where she has accepted her you know, international stardom. So she is on record saying, when I'm out in public, I accept that my time is the time of my fans. And so absolutely accepts people coming up and getting autographs and photographs and talking to her fans and engaging with her fans. And so as a result, her and her husband will go to Walmart to do their shopping at like one in the morning because that's when it's quiet. Which I think is lovely because it shows a kind of, firstly, a respect for his want and need to not be part of that public life. And secondly, at the same time, it balances with her respect for her fans, where she accepts that when she's out in public, they have a right to interact with her and and be part of the Dolly Parton experience. Um, I bet bet you didn't see this, but I really hope she's a dab hand at laying tarmac as well. She seems like (laughs) that kind of girl. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. So she had this uh, sort of quite coercive relationship with this chap called Porter Porter Wagner, and she needed to get out of that. She recognised that she needed to get out of it. And she wrote the song, I Will Always Love You, possibly her most famous song, or certainly one of her most famous songs, as a breakup song to Porter Wagner. He agreed, recognising the the prominence and importance of this song that if if she let him produce it he would let her out of her contract which she agreed to and then he sued her for breach of contract anyway which i think sort of says something about him yeah that's that she wrote a song called i will always love you i think says something about her but she managed to break out from under the shadow or control of porter wagner and that's where her career sort of skyrocketed i was listening to a podcast about this the other day uh, and they described it like she was a coiled spring being compressed by Porter Wagner. And then when that was released, she just exploded and all that energy went out into the world. And she became this fantastically famous star of, of screen uh, and uh, and the music industry because she broke into the TV world and, and the movie industry. She was a prolific songwriter. And interestingly, actually, the, the songs I Will Always Love You she either wrote it on the same night or within the same day or two as Jolene, which are you know, both international record-breaking songs. So she was clearly you know, on a uh, creative whatever it is that you're on when you write songs. Well, it's, but the, 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 there's an inherent statement around talent as well. Yeah. I mean, that th- th- clearly she is very good at what she does. And, and, and I, I want wonder whether there's a sort of a you you know my my penchant for the cake recipe analogy but you you can be very clever you can be yeah. a great lead and and not and there are many other things you could be that's positive but actually the people that truly stand out are the ones that have more of those things that make the right cake there are staggeringly talented people who crash and burn there are people who do very well but aren't really that talented and so it's i think this is the intersection of all of those things you know this is also one of my theories is too strong a word but th- this is a question which is do, do good people win we've we've sort of talked about this in the past where there's this sort of sense that the good guys don't always finish first I'm wondering whether she's one of these examples where maybe you're going to tell us, but it's not clear that she's got a bad bone in her body and yet she has been staggeringly successful. And perhaps even the question, has that played a part in her success? So rather than she was successful despite being a good person. I think you're right. I think it's a combination of, for me, three things here. She's prolifically talented in not just singing, uh, and playing instruments, of which she plays a whole raft of instruments. I don't think that's a collective noun for instruments, but you get my point. She is a very talented songwriter. And in fact, she said if she could do nothing else, songwriting is what she what she does best and what she wants to do. Um, she once said she's written 3,000 songs and three of them were good, which I think, again, sort of shows her, her sort of playful nature and, and humility. Um, but she's a very, very talented songwriter, very talented musician. But she's also, I said it's three things, as you say, a lovely person or seems to be, and very strong values, very honest about what those are, 
and very true to them. And I think that combination is extremely powerful. If you are talented and you stick to what you believe in, don't compromise, don't take shortcuts, you're going to be successful. And then the third thing is the tenacity and the hard work. Um, and she will we'll see sort of evidence of this, but 3,000 songs she's written and produced and, and, and pushed out into the world. She is still doing it now in her late 70s um, and, and has no, there's no indication she wants to retire or, 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 or slow down even. She, apparently she gets up at 3 a.m. I think that's probably a result of being born in a two-bedroom cabin with 14 people, one of which is a farmer. Um, but yeah, she gets up early. She works hard. I, I, by the way, um, I'd like to think she goes to bed at, I'd like to think she goes to bed at six o'clock. Because otherwise, that's well, we just know she goes at one in the morning. So I don't know when she sleeps. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, uh, again, how much of this is the reality, and how much of this is the myth of the of the the icon? Yeah, we we don't actually know. But she definitely works extremely hard, and I think those three things have have led to not just her success, but her continued success. Because I think you can very very quickly have success if you exploit people if you seek opportunities and, and and go for them and bend yourself out of shape to do it but they're going to be time limited i think if you build on success with continuity hard work the talent that she clearly has and, and don't compromise on those values then you build that longevity and that endurance but on top of that she was very very savvy so she recognized as she came out from under this shadow of Porter Wagner, that she needed to control her own narrative. Your work, not hers, but she needed to control who she was and who her brand was. And so she got on the TV circuit very deliberately and very tenaciously, doing hundreds of TV appearances. And interestingly, she didn't just go for the big things. She just went for everything. She wanted her name to be out there. And again, I think this, this is part of the she worked hard and so she wasn't trying to take shortcuts. And so she would do little local TV stations in smaller states in the US, as well as the big national shows. But everybody, by the end of the 70s, had not only heard Dolly Barton, but seen Dolly Barton. And they knew her and they knew her brand. Another quick in interesting fact, her first TV appearance, her parents didn't see it and her siblings didn't see it because they didn't have a TV. But by this point, clearly in the late sixties, early seventies, she um, she she had made it, and her parents would have seen her on TV at that point. She got a new manager, a guy called Sandy Gallen, who not only was just a really really good fit in terms of their relationship, but was also openly gay at a time where that was difficult. Probably less so in the. Uh, in the entertainment industry as perhaps some other other parts of society, but still a very, very difficult time to be openly gay. I think that hasn't hurt her being recognised as a LGBTQ icon. Um, I don't think that's the sole reason, but it, it certainly didn't hurt. And and she's, along with her sort of not getting too involved in, in politics, she also doesn't get in, involved in judging her audiences. And I think she's just one of these people who has this kind of people love who they love, people are who they are. And if they're happy and they like her music, then she's happy and she will keep producing her music. And, and as a result, she's become an icon of the gay LGBTQ community. She's become an icon of black women, which for a white Southern yeah. country and Western singer is slightly surprising. But then, of course, we know Dolly Parton, and it's not that surprising anymore, but only with hindsight. And that, that I think, is really interesting. But she's also become a an icon with millennials. And again, this is part of the, the magic of she's not neutral, so everybody can sort of bend her into the shape that they want her to fit. She's just likeable. For example, she played at um, Glastonbury in 2014. Yeah. And do you know what she played? Yakety sax on the saxophone. She played the, the Benny Hill theme tune to an audience of a hundred and whatever thousand 
because it's fun. It's not the country and Western songs that they were expecting, but it was fun and it was engaging. And so I think she reads audiences very well and is just a, a fun person. She obviously did also play a lot of her classic songs, but um, she also made it quite big on the millennial kind of circuit, if you like, by being a regular guest star on Miley Cyrus's Hannah Montana, which I think both you and I are avid fans of, of course. I'm very familiar with the work of Miss Montana. Absolutely. Hannah Montana is the daughter of a... uh, No, wrong. Billy Ray Billy Ray Cyrus. People are not familiar. Author of, I don't know whether he's the author, but certainly the the singer of Achy Breaky Heart, which if people aren't familiar with, should certainly check out. (laughs) Absolutely. And she is actually the godmother of uh, Miley Cyrus and and regularly came on to Hannah Montana as Aunt Dolly. And, And so that's how she sort of introduced herself to the early 2000s kind of millennial crowd. We haven't really talked about it, but another really interesting point is her relationship with sex. So she's very, very well known and her brand is very, very sexual. But in a... Well, I was going to say, is, is it? By the way, I was going to say, we, we should definitely stop mm. for a break in a minute. But then when you mentioned Dolly Parton <laughs> and sex, I think we'll get to that first. But I'd love to have you sort of explain what you mean by that. As in, I don't think she is you know people are associated with sex like madonna you would say oh well you know that a lot of her brand is built on that um i don't know that that's how she's perceived even though she's attractive you know i think she's got this lovely balance of playing on her femininity playing on her very large breasts which so far on this podcast We've, not we've never it. said no, we've, we we've never said that. Do you know, I no. don't remember mentioning that in terms of the Desert Fox or Steve Jobs. So that is a first no. podcast. But her Dolly Parton's boobs are part, part of, of her brand. So much so that Dolly the sheep, the first cloned sheep, is named after Dolly Parton because Dolly the sheep was created by of- mammary gland stem cells. And that's why they called her Dolly. So yeah, that's how prolific Dolly Parton's breasts. They're as big a part of her brand as she is. And yet she's not like she's like she's not Madonna, where it's an overt sexual thing that sometimes doesn't feel appropriate to play to certain audiences. Well, it's she, it's not it's not the reason why people like her. It is not that it is it is a she looks this way and yeah. And people like that, but it, that's not the reason why people like her. It's a no co- it, it, coincidence, it's a lovely, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And I, I think for me, it, it's kind of that lovely balance of she doesn't shy away from her sexuality. She doesn't shy away from being a woman, but it's also not her, it's not who she is in entirety. And yeah. I think it's quite a, a nice balance. Um, and she gets ahead of it as well. She plays on the fact that she wears lots of makeup. She plays on the fact that she's got large breasts. And she makes those jokes up front because she knows they're going to be made anyway. And so she has a a very um, self-deprecating sense of humour. And again, that makes, that makes her likeable. Um, it, it reiterates this point, though, about actually, the more we hear about it, the more I realise she has an extremely strong narrative, an extremely strong, carefully cultivated, positive narrative. And I don't mean that in an, in any way a negative sense, but how interesting that someone with these kind of characteristics, and I'm not just talking about breasts, but just in terms of where she's come from, the narrative could go anywhere. And yet I would say the one thing that strikes me is she owns that narrative. Dolly Parton sets the context for who Dolly Parton is and no one else sets that context. She was the person that said, I'm going to go on TV because I want them to know me. She's the person who has cultivated the way people see and think about her. And going back to the very beginning when we talked about the fact she has this sort of neutral position in politics well that's only because she has has carefully and consistently built that yeah no i I completely agree and i'm really glad that 
you know, I went away and read read some articles and did some research and listened to some podcasts. But it's it's really pleasing that you're bringing out the points that I I sort of thought made made her an interesting character. Let's let's take a break, and when we come back, we'll start to talk beyond the music and you know what she's managed to do outside in other other aspects of her work because she is truly a an amazing woman well what a perfect way to segue uh, we'll see you after the break Welcome back. We, you know, we've covered perhaps the the more obvious musical history of Dolly. And just before I think we we sort of segued by saying, let's go beyond the music. I was just thinking about this during the break, which is there are many people for whom if they created such a strong and notionally controlled narrative, that would be seen to be a negative. So you know, people go, ah, oh, well, they're, they're only telling you what they want you to see, or this is too good to be true, or this is sort of fabricated. Why is it that we we love the fact it's a strong and clear narrative? Because you could have another person, and if they had the same control over the narrative, be like, yeah, well, this is all fake. This is all manufactured. Yeah. Maybe, maybe I've answered my own question. Maybe it's because it is real. I I, I think you're right. If we go back to this idea of the Q score and that she has a very, very high positive Q score and a very, very low negative Q score, people like her, people, not many people dislike her. There was a an Australian marketing company that tried to find the Australian version of Dolly Parton and the person they came up with was Hugh Jackman. And again, I think, you know, arguably that's, yeah, like he's he's yeah. a likable guy, and and I think with both of these characters, the narratives feel genuine and authentic, and their behaviours reinforce that. And I think that's really really important. The moment it feels forced, the moment it feels like, you know, they they go home of an evening, and then change, and, and or they they're change. nasty. They're nasty to their makeup artist. But I, I mean, yeah, obviously. The, while these the influencers are all about sort of learning about some of these folks and what makes them great, perhaps, I do love the fact that they keep dropping these hints. And I think we've we've talked about authenticity on almost every episode, but it's not that you have to be authentic and a particular type of person. The first basis is be authentic, be who you are. Yes. And 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 then if you happen to be a likable and nice character, that's fine as well. But I think authenticity is different from likability, but you plug the two of those together and you've got something really special. Yeah, and I, I think if we think about what we've talked about as the definition of leadership, getting people to do things, there are lots of ways in which you can do that. But one of them is to get people to like you. If, if you if people like you and they like what you stand, then it's very easy to convince people to to come along with you on that journey. Yeah. Starkly contrast with Steve Jobs, who I think we talked about seemed to have a level of authenticity, and it turned out that authentic Steve Jobs was a bit of a dick. But the fact that he didn't hide it, the fact that he wasn't too faced actually i think you know played very very well because you knew what you were getting and we we talked about you know in that podcast so i'm not going to repeat too much of it but i think that authenticity is is a really really important thing and of course on top of that you've also got to have the ability to to make good decisions otherwise you can be you know authentically somebody that's not going anywhere um, well it's the it's I, the rest it's the recipe thing again each one of these things on their own helps yeah. But that doesn't necessarily guarantee success. But you, you put hardworking, clever, authentic, nice, talented, and all of a sudden, this is where you sort of end up with Dolly Parton. Yeah, and I, I don't know the, and I can't prove the negative, but I don't know how many talented young women in the 1960s 
were moving into the music scene that had a very short career and that was that and they did okay or didn't make it at all but i suspect it's a lot and it mm. wouldn't be because of a lack of musical talent she does have a history of making very savvy decisions so she came out of a very poor very humble tennessee background she ended up under this quite repressive character who tied her into the very difficult contracts and it's not clear whether she knew that they were bad contracts and just accepted it as part of this is how I've got to get on or whether she was genuinely just exploited and didn't know what she was doing at that time but she clearly very very quickly worked it out or knew and it was part of her game plan and she made the right choices getting out she got rid of her family band early on because she knew that she'd outgrown them um, and um, I think that could have been a very difficult period and it could have left a very sour taste she obviously managed it very very well because there was no bad feeling or ill feeling and they split knowing that they were effectively you know holding her back and I think again that just comes down to the fact that she's pretty authentic pretty honest all the way through I don't know exactly when this happened but a great example of how she's not a shrinking violet. She she is you know, in stature quite small. She's a woman in a man's world and all of those kind of things. But Colonel Tom, the infamous manager of Elvis Presley, Elvis Presley had approached, or, or Elvis Presley's sort of entourage, had approached Dolly Parton to collaborate on doing a recording of I Will Always Love You together. And that would have been a massive step up for Dolly Parton because it was at the height of Elvis's fame. He was doing the nightly shows in Vegas. It, it, would, have, it would have really, really helped her career. On the day they were going to do the recording, Colonel Tom came to Dolly Parton and said, oh, by the way, when Elvis signs contracts, he takes 50% rights of all music. And that was on the day of the recording. And she said, no way, we're not doing it. And she turned down that recording and it never happened. And I think easy to look back in hindsight and go, of course you wouldn't take that deal. What if, you know, you wouldn't get bullied into that. No, but no, no. Na name the person that would turn down. Elvis. On the day of the recording as well. This isn't, you know, you've got a couple of days to think about it. This was literally either at the studio or on the way to the studio, a phone call in the morning or whatever it was. And she said no. And she kept all the rights to I Will Always Love You which is one of the all-time you know, best-selling songs. What we try and do is reveal maybe a few more dimensions of the people we're talking about. And so far we've talked about a singer, but I think you're starting to talk now about a business person. Yeah. And so so let's let's develop that idea further, sort of talk, talk more about that. So she got into movie making. How many Dolly Parton movies do you know, Chris? Do you know any? Well, I I do, actually, because one of her famous movies, which still resonates today, was Nine to Five. And yes. do you, are you familiar with the plot of Nine to Five? Very loosely. I've not watched it. I'm going to be You're, honest. Th this is, this is going to be an ageist thing, isn't it, that I'm a little bit older? So. Oh, yeah. So the, the plot to Nine to Five, you'll be unsurprised to know, and this was, I think it was late 70s, maybe early 80s, was the story of a number of women who worked in an office and had a misogynist boss and the women rebelled and took the boss hostage, obviously in a sweet eighties kind of way. So she was the, she was one of the heroines in the, in the piece. And of course the theme to the film was nine to five, which is one of her most famous pieces. I mean, for non-country and Western aficionados, if you said to me, name a Dolly Parton song, Nine to Five, which is another very good song, by the way. So I know she did Nine to Five. Uh, that was yeah. a big Hollywood film. Um, has she done lots of others? She's done a few. So before we go on to those, I'm just going to come back to that Nine to Five. So Nine to Five was, you're absolutely right about the, the plot of the film, but it was part of a wider movement called the nine to five movement which was in the late 70s a movement i think it began out of boston and it was all about highlighting the discrepancies and the misogynies in the workplace as well as a precursor if you like to the me too movement it was a a sort of slightly softer way of 
highlighting the, the sexual misconduct in the workplace, the, the touching of, of the bum, the commenting on the appearance of the secretaries or, you know, these things were normalised and this was the start of the movement against them. And, and while Dolly Parton has never aligned herself with the feminist movement, she is definitely, in the broader sense of the word, a feminist. Yeah. And and again, this comes back to that nice balance of she doesn't reject her sexuality and her womanhood, but she absolutely embodies it whilst highlighting the wider you know, cultural issues that come with that. Uh, and Nine to Five was, was, was both a film, a, a brilliant song, and part of highlighting a wider movement that she felt was important. Probably also equally or better known for uh, Best Little Whorehouse in Texas and Steel Magnolia. I, again, haven't seen either of these movies uh, and probably should, but from what I understand, her performance in Steel Magnolia is actually a very, very great piece of acting. And as an actor, she holds her own. So she, I think the general perception, certainly my perception was, she was famous as a musician and so, you know, did these musical films, but, you know, a bit like the Beatles or, you know, yeah. any other you know, famous singers jumping in to do musical films, you kind of give them a bit of a pass on the acting. But from what I understand, her, the acting between her and her on-screen husband in, in Steel Magnolia is, is just re regarded as genuinely brilliant uh, and very fine acting. And then there's a film that I'm actually genuinely really interested to go and watch, which is called Rhinestone, starring Dolly Parton and Sylvester Stallone. That, where, that classic uh, mix. Yeah, where Sylvester Stallone has to, for whatever contrived circumstances, has to become a country and western singer. And I just love the concept of Dolly Parton <laughs> trying to teach Sylvester Stallone to become a country and western singer. We um, we we get you know we we often talk about really you know we talked about Oppenheimer. I wonder whether we have to go and watch Rhinestone and do it. I think we life. probably do. But interestingly, she not only acted, she also produced uh, and she created her own. Uh, I think jointly with somebody else produced or created a movie production company uh, that went on to do some really quite mainstream and well-known movies. So uh, Father of the Bride and the Buffy the Vampire Player series of movies were all produced by Dolly Parton's movie production business. Going back to this thing about, you know, we talked about the fact that she protects her husband and you don't know she's necessarily married and all those kinds of things. You don't know that she is obviously a successful businesswoman. You've seen all these clues. You know, you yeah. talked about the the, the Elvis thing, which was notionally a good business decision. And then you say, oh, it turns out also she she ran a production company or runs a production company, which in turn has also been successful. I, I mean, it, that's fascinating. How do you be so talented across so many areas? Yeah. And, and we've not even talked about her most successful business venture, which is, of course, her theme park. Which Dollywood. is called Dollywood. Isn't that fantastic? Dollywood. So that started when apparently she, uh, on a TV interview somewhere, I don't know how serious she was, whether it was just a throwaway comment, sort of the idea that she'd like to run or have a, a theme park. Uh, and somebody who ran a theme park in Tennessee at the time sort of got in touch with her, her company and said, well, let's make this happen. And so it was based on a old Tennessee theme park with an old, Tennessee Smoky Mountain sort of theme, cowboys, farming, very, you know, turn of the century kind of American industry. And they turned it into a Dolly Parton themed theme park, which has become phenomenally successful. I'm not, I, I think this has probably become quite clear through this podcast, I'm not a, a massive Dolly Parton fan. But in doing the research for this episode, I have become a fan of Dolly Parton. Not of her music, not of her movies, because you know I've not seen any of her movies and I've only listened to a few of her songs, but I've become a massive fan of, of her as a person. Of the person, of the person. And I'm really keen. I really want to go to Dollywood and see what it's like and get involved. But yeah, she opened this theme park. It is 
not a myth, although people think it is. There is a fact that on the day it opened, they buried a time capsule. And in that time capsule is an unheard single that Dolly Parton recorded and then buried that will be unearthed on her 99th birthday. I think she's in her late 70s now. So we've got a couple of decades to wait. And then there will be a new Dolly Parton single that dates back to the 80s. Dollywood has been extremely successful. I think it makes up about a third of her entire wealth and it brings in a considerable amount of money uh, every year, of which she then gives away an awful lot of money. So I think that the, the final way to round this off is to then talk about, we've talked about her business. Now let's talk about her philanthropy and her politics. So we've said she's not a political person in that she doesn't stick to a particular side of the what is quite now polarised you know, two-state system, uh, two-party system in, in the US. But that doesn't take away from the fact that she does, she does have her political views, she does have her, her causes that she promotes and champions. So I've already mentioned that she, she jumped very early into the, the debate about Black Lives Matter and said, this is absolutely an important cause that I believe in. And some of her fans pushed back against that and said she was wrong to do so, and she resolutely stuck to it and said, this is who I am, and you don't have to believe in my politics to, to listen to my music, and you don't have to like me if you don't like, but I believe in this cause. She was called out for... They had the Dixie Stampede, which is a event that takes place at Dollywood, and she was called out on the name and the connotations with the Civil War era uh, and it being associated to the Confederacy. And she very, very quickly and very happily made a public statement saying that was absolutely not what it was all about. That's not what we intended. But of course, there are those connotations, there are those um, relationships. Uh, and so they've just renamed it very happily without any fuss. Um, to the Dolly Stampede. I think basically what we're learning here is you can just put the name Dolly on whatever you like and it suddenly increases its popularity. Can I talk about one of the things? I mean, I'm I'm probably yeah. stealing from you, but I think this is, th there's two facts. The, the second one I'm not so sure of, the first one I'm much more sure of, which is about her philanthropy. So I'm guessing you've come across Dolly Parton's Imagination Library? Yes. So for those of you who aren't familiar, that is Dolly Parton set up a, I, I presume it's a charity, and quote, Dolly Parton's Imagination Library is dedicated to inspiring a love of reading by gifting books free of charge to children from birth to age five. And so she's partnered with people she does in the US, Canada, United Kingdom, Australia and Republic Ireland. And again, you probably know the answer to this because you've done, you do your research on these. Do you know how many books her charity has given away uh, since it started? I don't. I did. I, I, it's one of those facts that is basically in everything I've read and every podcast, but it's not one of the ones I've actually got written down. It's 218 million books. Wow. So yeah. so just, just think about that. If for those people who you know, depending on the, the the type of people that listen to our podcast and don't know much about Dolly Parton, how many of you realise she has influenced notionally 218 million children by teaching them to love books? And I don't think they're books of a particular, you know, pushing a particular party or a particular view, but just for the love of books. I thought that was absolutely fantastic. And again, it not only talks about Dolly Parton it talks about sort of the work she does and why she does it but again it's this business as a businesswoman only a staggeringly successful and thoughtful and clever businesswoman could pull something like that off 218 million books gifted yeah it's phenomenal and the reason that she's picked on literacy and books is because her father could never read and was never taught to read and apparently either on his deathbed or or sort of in his final few months as he was getting quite ill towards the end, said out of everything that she's done, that is the thing that he's proudest of her for achieving. 
because he knew how much not being educated, not being able to read had set him back. And he was most proud of her for you know, preventing that into the lives of you know, hundreds of millions of children worldwide. Yeah, phenomenal. But her philanthropy is pretty interesting because it's all based around things that she personally has a connection to. So as you would probably expect, there's an awful lot of uh, philanthropy in the area where she grew up in Tennessee, local hospitals, local churches. We haven't really mentioned her her religion, and there's probably a good reason for that. Her her grandfather was a fire and brimstone sort of Pentecostal preacher. She probably grew up in a very devout Pentecostal household. She talks a lot about spirituality and references God, not so much in her work, but in her interviews and stuff. Um, so I think she is probably a religious person. But I think she keeps that very much as personal to her rather than pushing that out as, as part of that wider narrative. But And I, I think that's, again, a, a helpful thing in that she recognises that people perhaps don't want to have religion pushed upon them but she's not shy about the fact that she is religious herself. So, yeah, lots of lots of sort of local charity philanthropy in the local area. Lots of work. We talked about the literacy, but also in helping children, particularly, get into music and get into the the music industry. And then things like when there are forest fires especially forest fires in the Smoky Mountains uh, in and around the areas that she grew up and loves. She she will donate huge amounts of money to that. And then more recently, of course, she came out very, very strongly in favour of the vaccine, vaccines for COVID. She donated a million dollars to the Vanderbilt Community Hospital for their research into mRNA and the mRNA vaccine that was subsequently developed. Whilst it's probably an overstatement to say that Dolly Parton, you know, cured COVID-19, her, her donation was a considerable part of the mRNA research programme that led to the US mRNA Moderna vaccine. Isn't, so, isn't that a fascinating spread of things that you donate money to now I, I, yeah yeah it could be that there's a team of people that say here's where you should put your money dolly but but the idea that it goes from books to when houses burned down she donated nine million dollars to support rebuilding of houses and and how unusual is it i don't think i've heard of any other person famous or otherwise donating that kind of money to that kind of research isn't that fascinating yeah. I, I think it is a personal thing. From everything I've read, it does seem to be that she, I mean, I'm sure she has a team of people that, you know, organise and perhaps advise her on their mounts and all that sort of stuff. But I, I do get the impression that she genuinely picks causes that she cares about personally, has a connection to. But I think that the thing I'm most impressed by with her involvement in the, the vaccine rollout was... And we've talked about the fact that she doesn't get too involved in politics. But if we cast our minds back, the the use or getting vaccinated was a was a very divisive thing. And she very much, you know, put her flag in the sand. Not only did she donate you know, considerable amounts of money for the vaccine research, but she also went on tour singing vaccine to the theme of Jolene and perhaps not quite as successfully i will always jab you to the theme of i will always love you that's, which i think that's, that's a little bit forced I, upon me. <laughs> I think that's still quite strong i mean for for if, if it was anyone else other than dolly perhaps but i think that's quite strong yeah well look we think we're coming to the end of our time we've covered sort of growing up the music the business the philanthropy what would have been your take ways that we can either learn from or apply so i think i think we've covered the kind of why she's been successful and it's that tenacity hard work talent and and being authentic to her values so i'm not going to really dwell on that too much i think 
more important for me personally is the importance of understanding and trying trying to find inspiration in a wide variety of people's capabilities and, and impacts. Dolly Parton is not somebody that I have ever heard mention in any of the leadership books I've ever read, in any of the podcasts that I've ever listened to about leadership and management, in any of the command leadership and management training I've ever done in the military. Dolly Parton is not somebody that people say, you should go and look to this person. And I think it's very similar to when we talked to Ian about chaplains and padres. It can overlook thing because it's not obvious. It's not obvious that they're a leader because they're not, you know, an industry captain or a, a military general. But leadership is a a broad and complex subject. And there are lessons and interesting things we can learn everywhere in in society and throughout history and so i think my big takeaway from this is i think we started to look for somebody just to make sure we were being varied and diverse on the podcast and actually i've come away learning probably more from dolly barton than i have from some of the other people that we've researched so yeah i think having my eyes open and going after people and, and learning lessons from people that I wouldn't necessarily straight away think there's going to be a whole load of really good leadership gold dust in here. But I think that's why we do the podcast, isn't it? It's to explore these things. I, I agree with you. And I think we come away, I come away from this thinking because Dolly fiercely protects what she does actually there's probably a load more we don't know. So a lot of the other influencers we've found, people have written about their leadership skills or they have talked about their leadership skills. And one of the things we haven't done is there are not lots of quotes from people saying she is a great leader because it's like, well, she's she's Dolly Parton, isn't she? And I, I, I maybe we have to get in touch with her people and say, you should come onto this small small insignificant British podcast with with two blokes because they want to ask you about your thoughts on leadership. But it would be fascinating to get her take on this. How much of this is considered? How much of this is instinctual? How much of this is yeah. part of a plan? And how much of this is because that's Dolly and she's Dolly and these things happen because she's Dolly? Well, whilst I'm not confident that we'll get Dolly Parton onto battling with business anytime soon, <laughs> I do have a, a feeling that she has the kind of organisation that would respond to emails with at least a polite email, and that might be enough. So so let's do that. Let's reach out to them and, and see what they think. Um, and yeah, maybe we can uh, have a follow-up. Could that be our biggest coup? And we reach out to the crossover leadership country and Western crowd which i i believe is very large but we'll have to find out i'd love to host dolly parton at the command leadership and management center at sandhurst and introduce dolly parton to an audience of military leaders who are going to learn lesson from you know a rhinestone covered leather clad septuagenarian but the the here's the really ridiculous thing I, i i know that was meant sort of uh with proper tongue-in-cheek but to your point you mentioned this dolly parton turned up at glastonbury to a sold out rapturous crowd who perhaps didn't know who she was maybe they heard one of our songs and so actually i suspect if she turned up at sandhurst she would be a massive hit she would be a massive hit because she would entertain she would communicate and she would win people over and maybe 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 that's a fitting way to finish this which is that's the secret of Dolly. She probably could turn up at Sandhurst and she probably could win them over and she probably could teach valuable lessons that no one had expected. Wonderful. Yeah, well, I think once again, we've kind of ticked the the box and scratched the itch of exploring interesting people. We, I, we I do. thoroughly enjoyed researching this one. Well, and I, I enjoyed learning more about her and I'm, I'm also going to go away and think about Pol Pot and Miley Cyrus as a pairing. Because I think yeah. that 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 maybe is our we we have to come up with these pairs, but I don't know. Well, look, thank you very much. Um, we are on uh, the platform formerly known as Twitter, battling with biz. That's with a Z. We are on battling with business at gmail.com. 
let us know how we're doing, what's interesting. But for now, we hope you enjoyed that brief visit to the world of Dolly. And um, we'll see you next time on Battling With Business. Wonderful. Thanks very much. Cheerio. Thank you.